Well, good morning. And thank you. Keth is a little lower, so I can't quite get to her. I'm so thankful that folks made it out in this snowy weather. I'm going to tell our folks who are watching from Hawaii and Arizona and Florida, we had to shovel the seasons this morning, but here we are. We've gathered as God's people. Our call to worship for this morning is Psalm 100. I've said it as a responsive reading, so as I read the first line, if you would respond, we'll enter into the presence of the living God together. Uh, let's begin. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. That's a promise that God has made of his good work in us and in the lives that follow us in family. Let's stand and sing together. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Have a seat. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. I'm so thankful that at the cross, Jesus paid the debt for our sin. But in the working of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, there's a, a breaking of the sin that was canceled at the cross. We can begin to live out the freedom that Jesus paid for. I love the gospel whether it's sung or read or preached or prayed, the gospel gives life. I welcome you, those of you online, uh, we thank you for the chance to join you by live stream, enter into your space. But for those of you on site, we've gathered here to worship God and to be together. His spirit dwells amongst us to his glory. 
A couple of quick announcements. I'm going to go through a number of these things. First, fellowship time. You'll see things set up to gather and have a brief conversation, uh, build relationships after the service. At about 10.15, I will be downstairs for the question and answer. I love to give people opportunity to ask questions about the sermon or about life or just any number of things. I want to create an environment because I think the gospel does this where folks can come with a question and not so much be told what to think, but at least hear one perspective on how I'd handle that. And then you go to the Lord. So that'll happen at 1015. Um, Quick word, next uh, Sunday we'll have communion. And I'm kind of on a high from going to my regional uh, ministry body. Many of you are aware, though this is a Christian Reformed church, my ordination is actually with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a different denomination. And so our regional body, we call them presbyteries on the Scottish side of the family, gathered yesterday in Findlay, Ohio both Friday and Saturday for our regular meetings. I am thankful that I saved eight hours of driving because they let me zoom in. That was good. And I was thankful as we examined new pastors that are coming into uh, our churches, uh, people from around the globe actually. I heard a testimony of Pastor Kevin Chang who was born in Taiwan but came to faith in Christ after his family moved here to the United States and he got involved in an English as a second language ministry at a church in the United States. Uh, He came to faith, his English got good enough for him to go to college and seminary and now he's pastored several churches around the United States and he's gonna be in Ann Arbor. Very thankful to send him there. I heard, again, friends that I remember from 25 years ago who one of our churches in Michigan sent to Afghanistan. Well, as you might guess, after serving and learning the language in Afghanistan, their home, Afghanistan's not a good people, good place for people who look like Americans, whatever that is, to, to be. But they've landed in Detroit and they're doing evangelism and church planting among Afghan refugees in the Detroit area. Who would have guessed that 25 years ago when we sent them there to learn the language and the customs and to build relationships, they could eventually come back to Michigan and share the gospel of God's grace. Um, The gospel is changing the world in marvelous ways. Oh, I also got an announcement this morning. You see, I'm ready to preach uh, just with the announcements. Who would imagine I get to go to a regional body of my denomination and I come away encouraged in the gospel? That's pretty cool. I'm glad to be a part of that. Anyhow, Monday a week, Monday, February 21, um, our book club meets and they're going to read a particular book. The story is about adopting from Ukraine, which makes it very timely. It's a story of a local family doing that, and the local author will be here to talk about it. So you'll read more about that, but it's a great chance to get into things. Now, Deb's been anxious to do the slides. Let's hit those. (laughs) Um, I just can't help talking. Uh, Our discussion groups going on Wednesday, online, and some other places as we 
preach through the parables. We're using this book as kind of an additional text to talk. Uh, this coming Tuesday, potluck and bingo. If you're not uh, tied up and available, come be a part of this time to just share life and build relationships. Uh, on February 23rd, our, at our Wednesday night, a fundraiser for missions. The food for the, that night at community night will be the staff chili cook-off. So your chance to eat good and support missions. Um, we're also signing up people for a packing on uh, Feed My Starving Children. Gather for two hours, they'll give you the equipment and we put together meals. Um, there's a bunch of celebration people packing between noon and two on Saturday. Be a great time for us to get together and serve together. And then finally, the um, Connect card. If you're online or need to get with us through the week, if you'll just text Connect to that phone number, you'll be able to catch up. We'll send you a link to a form and you can say, have Pastor Bill call, send me the um, email, just whatever it may be that's helpful. So that's kind of life for the congregation, but let's press on. I want to use the Heidelberg Catechism as our expression of Christian faith. Um, again, not ours to invent generation by generation, but ours to apply. And a great way to do that is to be taught by those who've gone before us. Here's question number 21. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in the Scripture. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others, but also to me. Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. You know, one of the great evidences of God at work in his people, and we confessed it here, it is a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me. How does a heart begin to trust God more and more? It's not your effort. It's not my preaching. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. He may use my preaching, he may use your surrender, but that's a sign of God at work in you. Let's sing, growing out of that, take my life and let it be.
men and have a seat. A couple of quick things as we turn to the Lord in prayer. One, we have an opportunity this morning, rather than us pray the Lord's Prayer together after my pastoral prayer, um, we'll have music that sets the Lord's Prayer to a melody, and I'll let you just kind of meditate through the music for the Lord's Prayer, but a little different direction for this morning. The other thing that I will say a bit with tongue-in-cheek is... um, I hope you're enjoying the propaganda games. It's been such a marvelous week to see propaganda played out on our televisions for us to see and appreciate. They're advertised as the Olympics. And I'm thankful for the hard work of our athletes. But I'm also aware that they're taking place in a country and under the auspices of a government that's totalitarian and opposed to anyone else having power. Here's a thought. There are more Chinese citizens in Chinese concentration camps today while we watch the Olympics. More Chinese citizens in Chinese concentration camps than there were German citizens in German concentration camps during the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. Now, if you know anything about the history of those games, great Americans like Jesse Owens were able to kind of challenge a guy named Adolf Hitler about our principles and things. I appreciate the hard work of our athletes. These are trying times. But I want to tell you, I'm not unaware, and I encourage you to be aware as well, of the challenges in our world, and we need to be a people of prayer. You've heard the story of Pastor Wang Yi, um, who's in jail, in prison right now, and in, he and his wife in China. I've been praying for them. I'm struck by the irony. There's probably more Calvinists imprisoned in China than in pulpits in the Okay, can we get the pulpit mic? Well, what an interesting time for the microphone to go out. I tell you what, Mr. China, whatever's going out, uh, we've got it. Let's turn to the Lord and we'll pray. And we can uh, get batteries in this a little later. Let's turn to God. Father, um, thank you that even when we don't understand this world, when it's more than we can grasp, that we can look to you and learn to trust. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us a deep and powerful trust, that you would work that in our hearts and minds. Thank you for your kindness to us, to bring us to hope and to faith. Lord God, I pray for our Heart Awake Ministries, that the variety of things that go on under this umbrella of ministry would be blessed by the power of your gospel whether it's Neighbors Plus with English as a second language and so many other ministries with our student ministry like we heard from Nate, whether it's our worshiping communities or our small groups, we pray that in all these things, Father, Jesus and his work at the cross and the power of the resurrection would be the moving and powerful hope for our lives. We pray for Watershed, Father, and Pastor Aaron 
We pray for uh, Zach Backstrom and Angela, the former worship pastor, as they've been involved in other ministry. We pray that you would bless their work and guide them. And we pray as our search team looks for someone in that position. We pray for Fusion and Pastor JB. We thank you for Mission, Lord God, and for Pastor Florencio, where the gospel will be made clear and powerful in just a few hours in the Spanish language. Father, I pray for celebration as the pastor of this portion of the flock. And Father, it's been a challenging, heartbreaking in many ways, several months. And so with a long prayer list, I would just hit these headings and ask you to pray in the silence of your heart for the specifics you know of or have seen in our emails. I pray, first of all, for those grieving loss, Lord God. Father, I pray too for those with medical needs who received a hard diagnosis, who were involved in treatment, whatever it may be. Father, I pray for those recovering. Father, you call us to pray for those in authority over us as far as it goes with us to live in peace. And so we pray in our regular cycle for the state of Michigan. We pray for Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Dana Nessel, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. We pray for those who represent our area in the State House, Mary Whitford and Jim Lilly and Bradley Slime, for State Senator Roger Victory. We thank you, Father, for the fruit of stable government that you've blessed us with for this season in this country. We pray for those who are in those positions that you would guide their hearts, that you'd give them insight, and even beyond their own ability, you would move through them. Father, we pray for the missionaries that go out from um, Heart of Wyke, various places, various peoples, various expressions of ministry. But we pray together as your church for the uh, body of Christ, our sisters and brothers who are in China many in underground churches, others in um, prison. We share with them a faith that's bigger than our differences. And we pray, Father, for the extension of the kingdom of God in that nation. Finally, Father, we thank you for the uh, promises of your scripture. And as we read in Psalm 62, verse 5, Rest in God alone, O my soul. Father, help us to speak to our own soul, to give it direction and guidance, to not live at the drivenness of our own fears, our own interior life. Help us to say, soul, rest in God alone, and then to pursue those spiritual disciplines that give your Holy Spirit access to shape our heart and thinking. Lord Jesus, this promise is such good news. The rest that you give us doesn't depend on our performance, on our circumstances, or this world changing for the better. It doesn't depend on people's approval. It's not tied to the economy or to politics or to our health even. If we, in you, we are forgiven, made right with you, and deeply loved. 
by you and by what you did on the cross, Lord Jesus, we have a redeemed past, we have peace in our present, and we have a glorious forever. Father, fill us with that great hope, even as we meditate in this music on the good promise of your calling and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. And the Lord be praised that he's gifted his church to empower our worship of him. Um, we're preaching through several of the parables, and we're calling this series in all three of our campuses a scandal of grace. This morning, we're looking at a well-known parable, one that should easily come to mind. It's called sometimes the parable of the prodigal son. I like to call it the parable of the three sons, because there really are three sons in this story if you'll dig in. 
I want to focus us. This is such a rich passage. I've got to focus us on a couple of key things. And so you'll see this in the reading of the scripture that I'm going to do. I'm going to jump through chapter 15 and encourage you to perhaps uh, go home and read and meditate on this. We'll look at verse 1 and 2, and that kind of sets the... um, the scene, you'll see that Jesus is talking to people while there's two different groups of people uh, considering his thing. And then he has three parables. The first one is a lost sheep. There's a hundred in a flock and one is missing. The good shepherd seeks it out. There's the lost coin where a woman has 10 silver coins but loses one, so she searches until she finds one. And then this, I'll look at the third parable in this series, is the lost sons. And I say plural because there's at least a younger and an older. And it turns out that both sons are far from the father's heart. Both of these young men are more interested in God for what they can get. They just do it in different ways. One is irreligious. He pursues wild living. And the other is very religious. He obeys the law. But both are living in a pig pen of their own brokenness. It's a fascinating story the way Jesus tells us. So... Uh, Hear the word of God. I will read Luke 15, these selected verses, and then we'll dig in. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 17, when the younger brother came to his senses, key phrase, He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while this son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, and listen to the son kind of with his prepared speech here. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now listen to how the father interacts with that idea. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but is now alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. Later on, and you know how this fits into the larger story, I hope. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God and Father, we thank you uh, for how you have entered into the human condition, the the condition of your creation. And as Jesus was God the Son who took on flesh, who walked among us and spoke and taught, but even more than teaching, he went to the cross to pay the price, the debt of our sin. And being raised from the dead, declared Lord of all, he conquered death and all the consequences of sin. And so even now, his words are precious to us. 
we thank you that you moved upon a Greek physician named Luke to confirm and record these words that you've preserved them across centuries now, that we can open the scroll as it were, get within a few decades of, of Luke's actual writing, read, listen, and hear. So Holy Spirit, illumine your people, take the ink from the page as it were, and challenge our hearts to receive all it is that you have for us. Love your people, may it overcome even my brokenness and sin and confusion. Glorify your name and fill us with hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said together, amen, amen. We don't often think about this final of the third paragraphs in regard to judgment because it brings such a message of grace and reception and forgiveness. But I want to this time kind of really hone in on this idea of judgment and what does God's judgment look like really? Um, What does it mean when God judges and how does that work its way out? I wanna tell you the first thing we observe and discover in this parable is that sometimes the judgment of God in our own life and in human history can look like absolutely nothing. Not a thing seems to happen. Think about it, this son, after an act of rebellion where he says, give me the inheritance, we would translate that into drop dead dad I don't want you, I want what I get from you, and the most I'll ever get from you is after you're gone. So drop dead. That's an act of rebellion. Where's the judgment? At first, it doesn't happen. And you wonder, goodness, could he say that and get away with it? I want to suggest to you that this is not a parable that's meant to teach us about how to parent rebellious kids. It's not an instruction book or a propositional statement on what to do when you encounter acts of rebellion in your children. But it's going to show you some things about grace and about how grace can change hearts and change behaviors. So, what does God's judgment look like? Well, sometimes at first it looks like nothing. That's what we discover in verse 13. He wants to forget his family, forget the expectations of the culture, forget a dad who's loved him. He wants what he can get for himself. And there's no lightning from the sky. His microphone doesn't go off. (laughs) Who knows how God's judgment expresses itself. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. An act of rebellion, it pays off, he heads off for a party. So far, it sounded kind of all right. You see, because of God's mercy, here's what we need to remember. His judgment often happens as a process over time. At the beginning, you may not see it. Often, we're inclined to think of judgment as a final sentence. Have you ever been in a courtroom? There's been a trial. The jury delivers the verdict. The judge gives the sentence. Boom. We think of that as judgment. And it looks through the Bible, as best I read it, that there will be an event in history just like that. But it's not so much what we see right now. Before the final sentence, 
the judge's gavel, before that comes, there seems to be a cascade of consequences. Have you ever done something wrong, sinned, and nothing seemed to happen? But that sinful choice kind of set up some other choices that set up some other choices that set up some other choices. I was so taken by the streaming series Breaking Bad years ago. What a fascinating, not good for all ages, story of a collapsing character. Here's a high school chemistry teacher with a cancer diagnosis, decides to sell crack to take care of his family when he dies. Well, things turn out a little different. And what happens, he makes that decision to make methamphetamine. And that decision leads to another, to another. There's this cascade of consequences. The scripture calls this giving them over. And we read about it in Romans 1. I'll read to you the 24th and 25th verse. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sinful behaviors. Now, the ones he's talking about are specifically um, sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies. But think about this younger brother. His heart is set on selfishness. He demands to get his own. There's a behavior. And nothing happens. Let me suggest to you that what's going on in this moment is God is giving him over to the sinful desires of his heart. Now, his behaviors are different than Paul is talking about in Romans 1, but the, the, the movement is the same. A sinful desire that leads to sinful behavior, and God's judgment is first to give him over. In verse 25 in Romans 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So he took truth, said, I'd rather live by lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And God gave them over, and at first it looks all right. I tell you one of the really surprising things that the scripture has taught me, the gospel has helped me understand it, but the scripture is very clear, and experience has said this as well, is that sin has its pleasure for a season that you can sin, and it may at first be sin, fun. I've been floored to listen to junkies through the course of my ministry, and they all want to get back to that first hit. You know, the first hit must be something, but you see what it leads to, the cascade of drug use over time. Nobody who wakes up from the good time of a binge drinking on the college campus has in mind that at 35, they'll be an alcoholic and their marriage will be compromised and brutalized and broken. Oh, it's kind of fun when it starts, but the cascade of consequences eventually leads to death. It's a tough thing to say. But listen to what the scripture says. Speaking of Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty five, 25, it says, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. Now, the fleeting pleasure of sin was the, the marvelous, 
opportunity to grow up in Pharaoh's house where there was food, clothing, work, education, all the benefits of life. But he chose to put his life with God's people even though it meant suffering. You see, sin has its pleasure for a season. Let's be honest about that. The first time you cheat on your taxes and kind of get away with it, you're thinking, well, I deserved it anyhow. Do you hear how the rationalizations come in? Sin has its pleasure for a season, but it always ends up isolating and alone. The younger brother at one point is in the pig pen, alone, no resources, abusive work, unfulfilled life. Sin has its pleasure for a season, but the cascade of consequences that follow inexorably take us to a point of being alone. You know, well before COVID, social researchers were observing that there was an epidemic of loneliness growing among the citizenry of the United States, particularly among younger ages. We had more and more connection, but less and less relationship. And there was a loneliness. You see it play out in suicide. You see it play out in drug abuse. You see it play out in despair. Aloneness is where it ends. But from alone and isolated, you go back And you see a final sentence given over. You see the cascade of consequences where things begin to fall apart. You see sin's season of pleasure and then sin's behavior and all the way to the root of sin's desire and sinful heart. And that plays out all through the scripture. Again, let's go kind of backwards. Do you remember Babylon and the exile in the Old Testament? The people of God are sent to a place of wickedness and deprivation. That's the end. But before that, God rendered his final sentence. As the prophet spoke, it's been decided. Your sin will send you to Babylon. Before that, there was a cascade of consequences, the divided kingdom and the corrupt kings. You read through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and you think, why would they keep getting bad king after bad king after bad king? That's the cascade of consequences that comes from a previous demand for a king. They would demand a king and have a good season. David, Solomon, life is okay before they had that corrupt cycle, do you see? But it comes at root from a heart that doesn't trust God. So there's this progression from a sinful heart to sinful behaviors, to the, ca- the season of pleasure, the cascade of consequences, finally a, a final sentence, and then aloneness and alone. Because of God's mercy, the younger brother experienced the judgment of his sin over time. It's a slow decline. But then something happens. Verse 17. When the young son came to his senses, think about that again and again, he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. The son came to his senses. Now, we usually think of this as the turning point in the story. Oh, he'd been living in the consequences of his sin. Now, he's going to get it together. He's going to get a haircut and get a real job, and life is going to work out. 
He comes to his senses. What I want to tell you is that he does come to his senses. The scriptures are right, but he's far from the gospel and the father heart of God. You see, you don't have to be very bright to come to your senses. You can come to your senses because most anybody can figure out that pig pens are nasty. Not going to build a lot on that. Can we just all say, yeah, pig pens are nasty. Nearly any person can figure out, I don't want to be here. And we can come up with a, a plan to get out of the pigsty. I've been boring Mary Lynn to death. A band used to play their music. Get a haircut, get a real job. Get life together and don't be a slob. Why can't you be like your big brother Bob? Go get a haircut, get a real job. See, that's the answer. I could do that in 12 Bar Blues if you'd like. Um, that's the way the world speaks to somebody who comes to their senses in the pig pen. Get a real job. Get your life together. So the brother does that, and he comes up with a plan. Here's what struck me as never before. His plan to go back to deny that he's a son, to take work as a servant, and to make something of his life is a plan that his brother would approve of. Think of the, the older brother's heart, if you've read this story before. The older brother would say, yeah, okay, I'll approve of that. You can come back, but you'll never be in the house. Yeah, you can come back, but I want to see if you can hold a job first. Yeah, are you going to quit drinking for how long? Yeah, the older brother, he would approve of this plan. But what we see in the story is that the father does not. The younger brother comes and he lays out the plan to work his way back in to the father's, back into a good life out of the pigsty. And the father doesn't even listen. The father, the first thing he says, bring the robe, put it on him, do this. He is our, my son. See, here's the powerful thing, friends. The father offers adoption when the older brother and the younger brother only seem to know the coin of works. Do you see what's pointed out? Behave, earn, and the father says, no, first, you are my son. I want to tell you something that's amazing about grace. It is based on unfairness. You know, it's fair that if you take your inheritance, squander it, that you should not have access to any more of the inheritance. Might give you a job, you can work your way up. That's fair. But grace is no, you are adopted. Fairness would be to say, there's a price to be paid, you better pay it. Grace says, there is a price to be paid, but I paid it. See, grace isn't about fairness. It's about what God has done. The gospel isn't about get a haircut and get a real job. It's about receive the identity of a deeply loved, fully adopted child of the great creator king, and then let that live in you and then through you. Forgiveness of sin in the gospel is not about fairness. It's about Jesus paying the price for our sin. 
We don't deserve it. He pays what we could never pay. He balances the scales of justice and he offers that freely. See, here's how I would sum up the thing that really settled on me this week, praying for this moment. You can come to your senses, the brilliant insight that pigs' pens are no fun. You can come to your senses and still not arrive at God's grace. You can do all that, clean up your life, and miss the gospel completely. You can show up for every meeting across years. You can meet all the expectations and requirements and miss grace. It's an interesting scene in Luke 20. So the youngest son got up from the pig pen and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. The father has been watching and he has been waiting and his heart is filled with compassion. But we see that he pulls up his robe and he runs to the younger brother. There's a lot of conversation in the commentaries. I won't recap it about why would a dignified Middle Eastern head of household do something so undignified. Is there that much love? Well, yes. But I want to tell you something that as I was doing the Lectio Divino preparation, the kind of meditating through the text, there came to me another reason why that father is probably running when he sees the younger brother. I think that the father runs in order to intercept the younger brother before the older brother can rob him of grace. The older brother would happily have the younger brother back on those terms. Yeah, show up at our event, be good, do what you ought to. But the father wants to intercept and tell the younger brother, no, it's not about your plan. Not let the older brother pollute or rob the younger brother of grace. And he wants to deliver the gospel. One of the moving times for me at our presbytery meeting, our churches were sharing about their experience with Afghan refugees. And it's amazing to me, it continues to be amazing to me, the work that God is doing among Muslims in, in our generation. Oh, by the way, you didn't see that on the evening news. I don't care what channel you're watching. But there are Muslims all across the world who go to bed having been instructed by Islam, their faith, that Jesus was just a prophet. He was not God the Son who took on flesh, and he never went to the cross. And in a dream, they meet Jesus who says, oh, what you've heard of me is not true. I am God the Son, and I did give my life for you. And they wake up the next morning as believing Christians. Now, they need to be discipled. There are a lot of other things still going on. Friends, I want to tell you, we were hearing stories happening both overseas and now in Muslim communities of refugees in the United States of these things happening. And I began to realize that when they come to that faith, one of the worst places for them to go would be many churches in the United States. What will they get if they showed up and said, boy, I think Jesus is the son of God incarnate. Oh, well, that's just a fable. I went to a church-related college where we were instructed that there is no sort of intersection between the supernatural and the natural. 
What if there are people coming to faith? Would they then come here? What would they get? Older brother, get a haircut, get a real job. Or would they get the message of the gospel? The love of the Father, his redeeming grace. We prayed actively Friday that God would guard these new converts from American consumerism and selfishness. That there's currents in our culture that would take people away from the gospel. Guard them, Father. Intercept these returning new converts. You see, it's interesting. You can leave the pig pen and still miss the party. The father wanted to rescue, to intercept the younger brother before the older brother robbed him of grace. And the other thing we see with the father is that he offers to both sons an invitation to the party. He intercepts the younger son and he pursues the older brother. Lay aside your hard-hearted, obedient works righteousness and receive the gift of God's grace. Both sons are invited to a party. They're not given a career of how to behave or what to do. Oh, their lives will change. They'll need to carry on with the farm of the family as it were, but they need to serve from their identity as sons of the living God, not for that identity. At the cross, Jesus called us to a new identity, and then the Holy Spirit empowers us to live out that identity. He doesn't say, behave, and then you're mine. And I'll close by pointing real quickly to a thing that's what really fascinated me. Both sons are invited to a party, but a sacrifice needs to happen for the party to take place. The fattened calf... That's mentioned here. You know, I've heard preachers laugh and say, well, it was a great party for everybody but the fattened calf. You see, somebody had to give their life. A little bit of study, and I won't get into the detail of this, but the word that's used for fattened calf in Greek, mochas, is used three times here and two times in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 12 and verse 19. And only one other time in the whole New Testament, three times in two. And those two times that it's used in Hebrews 9, it's about the blood of calves, the sin offering in the Old Testament, that has now been superseded by the once and for all blood offering of the Messiah. The writer of Hebrews encourages us to see the whole Old Testament sacrifice system, the sacrifice for sin, the blood of calves, met in the blood of Christ at the cross. There's a party. Somebody had to sacrifice. Here's the good news. It was Jesus. It takes a sacrifice that feeds the party. And the good news is... The sacrifice of Christ at the cross, that blood is our hope and our adoption. Jesus is the true and perfect son. He is the brother that the younger brother didn't have. He is the brother that the older brother would not be. Jesus is the true and perfect son or brother. And what he offers us is adoption. He makes joining the father's party possible. Because of what he did, the younger brother 
can enter into that identity. The older brother can lay aside his works and enter into that identity. The gospel changes who you are. He doesn't say, just be whatever you feel you are, whatever you want to be. He introduces these brothers and he calls us to a whole new identity. What does it mean to have our values, our hopes, our fears adopted and changed in light of adoption? Welcome to the Father's party. We know the name John Newton. Um, historical character, we associate the term, the him, amazing grace with him. And you know something of a story, perhaps, born in a broken family, ends up going to sea in the 18th century, becomes captain of a slave trading ship, which is horrific for the people captured and brought across. He comes to faith in Christ, but it takes years, decades for that faith to work itself out. Let me read to you a letter that he wrote late in life and hear the heart that the gospel makes. I can truly say, he says to this person he's mentoring, that I bear, upon my, that I bear you upon my heart in, in my prayers. I have rejoiced to see the beginning of a good and gracious work in you. And I have confidence in the Lord Jesus that he will carry it on and complete it and that you will be amongst the number of those who shall sing redeeming love to eternity. Therefore, fear none of the things appointed for you to suffer along the way, but gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end. Be not impatient, but wait humbly upon the Lord. You have one hard lesson to learn. That is the evil of your own heart. You know something about it, but it's needful that you should know more. For the more we know of ourselves, the more we shall prize and love Jesus and his salvation. As I was reading this, I kept asking, who would write this letter to me? And I encourage you, do you have anyone in your life that could write such a letter? Could you write a letter like this into someone else's lives. Our sins are many, Newton says, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder to a legal spirit that captivates our heart. And these evils are not removed in a day. Remember, the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak which increases slowly, indeed, but surely. I commend you to the care of the good shepherd and remain for his sake yours. John Newton, March 18, 1767. That's the heart of a disciple. Aren't you glad that the father got to the younger brother rather than the older brother? When somebody shows up at our door at Hardawike, what do they get? Do they meet the depth of John Newton or the self-preserving self-righteousness of the older brother? What did you get? Perhaps this moment is the good news of a God who will change your life by giving you a new identity based on what Jesus did at the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God and Father, I thank you for your goodness to us in the marvelous name of Jesus, that you have loved us like no other.
that you saw our brokenness. You knew it was beyond us. And so you entered in, Lord Jesus, and you offered to us new life as a work of grace that you did rather than our own effort or self-righteousness. Father, help us to see in the cross a doorway to hope and to new life, to changed life, to fruitful life, to security, to humility, to all the things that Jesus would give that we need for life. We don't doubt that, but that we could never provide for ourselves. Father, we thank you for the great love that comes to us from the cross, our true and perfect older brother. Fill us with great hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to this melody before we sing.
Remember next week when we gather, we'll have communion. I encourage you to reflect not only on your sin, but on God's answer with the cross. And now from the book of Romans, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in that hope.